1938, there was a college 400-meter runner that was much, much faster than everyone else. Essentially, there was no chance of beating this guy. No chance. And so when it came to the U.S. championships, the NCAA championship, the coaches of the other teams, of the other runners, developed a strategy against this man. And the strategy was is to make this race as uncomfortable for him as possible. And so what they did was is they began the race, they immediately cut in on him. They cut in on him, and the other runners would actually take their sharp cleats and they would kind of kick backwards as they, as they would run. And those that were beside him would kind of elbow him. They would kind of make it look like an accident, you know, but as they're running, they would kind of elbow him just to make this as difficult as possible on him. And they really, really roughed him up, and he did not win the race. And when he finished the race, his shins were covered in blood, and he had a cracked rib. Now, they don't let any of those shenanigans go on today at the NCAA championships, but they did back then. And they made it impossible for this young fellow to win. And you know what? I think this is exactly what happens to Christians. As we run our Christian race, something keeps trying to cut in on us to keep us from finishing well. And that something is works righteousness. Works righteousness. What do I mean? Well, works righteousness is this hellish idea that we can be more pleasing to God if we only just try harder and do better at obeying His laws. This moralistic framework, it makes our obedience to God a drudgery, a pain. It just cuts us up. And by the time we finish our Christian race, like that young runner, we're just covered in cuts. We got cracked ribs. We've been beat up by this moralistic, legalistic framework that unfortunately is so common in American churches today. And it makes us insecure. It makes us fearful. It makes us anxious. Or it makes us self-righteous and proud. Yes, don't get me wrong. We do need to obey God. But we need a new motivation for our obedience. A new motivation. One that is marked by joy and freedom rather than fear and anxiety. So let's turn together to the book of Galatians, chapter 5, and we'll look at verses 7 through 12. The Apostle Paul here is addressing this very thing. Paul had planted these churches in Galatia. And he cared deeply about the Christians there. And they were running their race okay, but something started cutting in on them and roughing him up. 
And so Paul helps them out. And I think in helping them out, he helps you and me out too. Let's look at it. This is chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. Verse 7. Paul says, You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these precious words, these life-giving words. Thank you that you have gathered us here tonight for such a divine appointment, for a very specific reason, that, and that is to hear these words and to let these words sink in to our spirits. And so, Father, I just pray for your spirit to move in each of us here in the room. Move in our hearts and give us eyes to see and ears to hear the beauty of your Son and the wonders that he possesses and the wonders that are revealed through these incredible words of your apostle. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Paul shows us two things here. Two things. He shows us why we need a new motivation for our obedience and what the new motivation is. Okay? He shows us why we need a new motivation, and then he shows us what the new motivation is. Number one, why we need a new motivation. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. Verse 7 and 8. He says, you were running a good race. What happened? Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. Okay, so notice that Paul says that you have to obey the truth. He doesn't say, well, you know, now that you're accepted in Christ, by grace, through faith, you know what? Y'all can just go sin all you want. That's not what he says. <laughs> no. You should obey. But the real, the real question here that Paul's addressing is, why? Why obey? What is your motivation for obedience? So Paul asks, who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? Now, this question had to have shocked the Galatians. <laughs> it, had to shock, it had to have shocked them. Why do I say that? Well, the Galatians were embarking on a hardcore obedience effort. Hardcore it, it really doesn't even get any more hardcore than the obedience effort the Galatians are embarking on. They were about to become circumcised. And they were about to try to follow the full letter of the Old Testament law. But then Paul says, who has kept you from obedience? They have to have been like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Obedience is the whole thing we're after. It's the whole thing we're running after, Paul. What do you mean who's kept us from obedience? 
We're like the most hardcore obediencers of them all. So obedience is a, is there a word? Uh, <laughs> Y'all get it. It's fine. We're Alabamians. Uh, okay, so what in the world is Paul talking about? What do you mean who has kept you from obedience? Well, here's the implication. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying that if you obey God for the wrong reasons, God sees it as disobedience. You see? If you obey God for the wrong reasons, God sees it as disobedience. Conforming to the moral law with an ill intent is sin. It's actually sinful rather than righteous. If you think that obeying the moral law, the Ten Commandments, can win you favor with God, you are actually disobeying the law. You're ironically not really listening to what the law is saying. Now, many modern people, Christians including atheists, I've heard this a ton, they say they live by the golden rule. All we need is the golden rule. Uh, if, we ju if everyone just lived by the golden rule, then we'd all be fine. We don't need the cross. We don't need a savior. We don't even need religion. We just need the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. That's all we need. Now, if, if that's you tonight, if that's the stance that you take, I'd like to say that I agree with you. I actually agree with you. The golden rule would be absolutely all we need if it wasn't for one small problem. Not a single one of us obeys the golden rule. Not even a little bit. Not even a teensy, tiny bit. You see, if you say that you live by the golden rule, I don't think you've actually read the golden rule. Or you, maybe you've read it, but you aren't really listening to what it is saying. Let's, let's really try hard tonight to listen to what the golden rule is saying. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. What does that mean? Well, that means that you must treat absolutely everyone. Everyone. Your friends, your family members, your enemies, your co-workers, even total strangers, with the same amount of care, love, and respect that you desire yourself who in this room does that just a show, quick show of hands this guy doesn't not even a little bit <laughs> not even a teensy tiny bit this is why Paul says the law the moral law is a schoolmaster that brings us to Christ. If you say that you only follow the golden rule, 
you're not following it at all. Because if you were, you would follow it all the way to the foot of the cross. Because that is where it is intended to lead you. That is the only place it can lead you. Through our utter inability to live according to God's law, we see our dramatic need for a Savior. So, these Galatians, who think they're about to dutifully obey the law, are actually being cut in on by the law. And they're not going to obey it at all because they have the wrong motivation. They think that their strict obedience to the Old Testament law will accrue favor for them in God's eyes. That's their motivation. And for Paul, the motivation for your obedience is everything. It's everything. And to miss that truth is no small problem. Let's look at verses 9 through 10. This is no small problem. Paul says, A little, just a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. He says in verse 10, I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. You see, this teaching that says, well, your heart doesn't really matter as long as you just obey, as long as you just follow the rules. That teaching is like a little yeast that works its way through the whole batch. It's like cancer. It's like gangrene. It will work its way through your entire heart and end up crushing you. And it can work its way through our entire church and crush it. Just a little yeast ruins the whole batch. Now, based on what I know of the American church, this teaching is spreading like fire and is a real threat to the church in America. Much of the preaching you hear today will tell you to obey, 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 and obey some more. But never mention one thing about the heart behind the obedience. That's a big problem. As Paul says in verse 10, these preachers will pay a dear penalty for this false teaching. And it goes even farther in verse 12, if you want to know what Paul really thinks about those who teach things like this. <laughs> Let's look at verse 12 together. As for those agitators, those false teachers, he says, who are teaching you guys that you need to be circumcised, he says, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Didn't, you didn't know that was in the Bible, did you? <laughs> Paul doesn't pull a lot of punches, if you know anything about Paul. <laughs> But, see, the truth is Paul cares so much about these people. He loves them so much that he knows they're being cut in on by this false teaching. 
and it's causing them to lose their way. And it's causing them to not be able to finish their Christian race very well. Okay, so let's look at what the new motivation is, point number two, what the new motivation is. Now, there are two sides to this new motivation. The first side is offensive. Let's look at verse 11. Verse 11, brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. You see, the gospel always starts with an offense. It always starts with an offense. If you've never been offended by the cross, I don't, I don't know that you've really understood it. Now, the difference between Paul's approach, Paul's message, and the false teacher's approach is this. Now, I would actually say this. The, the approach of virtually all false teachers, all false teachers is the same. It is on the outside very positive and affirming. Now we can think of one very smiley TV preacher here. On the outside, it's very positive and affirming. But on the inside of that message, it is extremely offensive and damaging. Now, the approach of Paul, on the other hand, is on the outside very offensive and damaging. But on the inside of that message, it is positive and affirming for your soul. What do I mean? Well, the message of the false teachers in Galatia, and most of the false teachers that you will see on TV and in many various places like social media and churches you might run into, most of the false teachers... Uh, give a similar message, and, and it's just like this. It just says, be good, be noble, live rightly. And that's pretty much it in a nutshell. Be good, be noble, live rightly. No one has ever been offended by that teaching. It's not offensive. It, it might seem like a lot of pressure, sure, but at least it's affirming and empowering. But when you come to the cross, you hear that you are so lost, so far from being able to live a good life, that nothing less than the death of God could save you. So on the outside, the false teachers seem affirming, and the gospel seems offensive. But you see, on the inside, it's the exact opposite. The false teachers say that the reason you need to obey, the reason you need to obey God is so that God won't reject you, so that God can accept you. See? But the gospel, but Paul's message, says that the reason you need to obey is because God will never reject you. He will never reject you. He has already fully accepted you in Christ by your faith. Simply by your faith, not your obedience. The inside of the false teacher's approach is fear-based. It doesn't seem like that on the surface, but on the inside, it is totally fear-based. 
It's absolutely demeaning when you think about it. But the inside of Paul's approach, the inside of the gospel, is love-based. It is absolutely liberating. You see, Jesus was rejected by God on the cross so that you never will be. No matter what you do or don't do in this life. No matter what. Now, so many modern people take issue with this. They don't like it. Including church people. A lot of church people don't like this. They'll say, well, you know, if I thought I was saved by 100% sheer grace, just grace, and that no amount of sin in my life could ever make God reject me, if I really thought that, I would have zero incentive to live a good life. Zero. I would just go sin all I want. And here is always my response to that mindset. If when you lose your fear of rejection, you also lose your incentive for living a holy life, then the only incentive you ever had for living a holy life was fear. I'm going to say it one more time. If when you lose your fear of rejection, you also lose your incentive for living a holy life, then the only incentive you ever had for living a holy life was fear. You were only obeying God to avoid punishment. If you're obeying God with fear as your motivation, your obedience will always be extremely limited. Extremely limited. Here's what I mean. You will only work for, for God to the degree that God works for you. Your relationship with God will be transactional. If you're, let's just say, for example, you're praying really hard every day, you've got your little quiet time, let's say you serve on, maybe serve on the worship team, you know, you're, you're really jumping into your local church, you're serving, uh, maybe you're serving your neighbor, and, and your life is going well while you're doing all those things, well, you'll likely to continue. You're likely to continue praying and serving. But when your life begins to fall apart, when God is not answering your prayers, you get frustrated and you shut things down. Why? Well, because your relationship with God is transactional and God's not holding up his end of the bargain. You see, I put in A, B, and C for God, and now God owes me X, Y, and Z in return. But if I, if I don't see a return on my investment, I'm going to stop investing. I have no more reason to invest if I'm not going to get a good return on my investment. You see, when hard times strike, it becomes obvious whether you got into this religion so you could serve God or if you got into this religion so God could serve you. That is one of the beauties of suffering. It lets you know where you're really at. Okay, so how do you fix this? 
Maybe you're saying, you know what, I think I might be stuck in some fear-based obedience. How do you get out of that? Well, you have to see the other side of this new motivation. You have to see the other side. You see, what starts as an offense ends up as beautiful. It ends up beautiful. The complaint I get most often by Christians who desire to grow in the faith is, is like this. They'll say, they'll say, Pastor, look, I actually know what I ought to be doing. I'm just struggling to do it. I just, I, I'm lacking the motivation. I, I'm lacking the heart for it. But I know what I ought to be doing. And what's my answer to that? What do you think I say? Try harder? Do better? You need a new accountability partner? No. There's no 12-step program that will help you. So what can? Well, really, there's only one thing. There's only one thing that can help you. And King David knew what it was. He wrote about it in Psalm 27, verse 4. King David says this. He says, One thing I have desired of the Lord that I will seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and behold the beauty of the Lord. The beauty of the Lord. Thomas Chalmers wrote a wonderful sermon. If you ever get time to Google it, it'll be worth your time. Thomas Chalmers wrote a wonderful sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of of a new affection. And he says this, quote, the only way anybody's heart is ever changed is this. At the heart of every heart, there is an object of the greatest beauty that you cannot live without. Therefore, you can't just stop being proud. You can't just stop being lustful. You can't just stop lying. Because underneath those sins is an object of beauty. You've put all of your hope in. And it is only when Jesus Christ becomes the greatest beauty in your heart that you can replace those idols you're clinging to. End quote. The cross starts off for everyone as ugly. And offensive. It shows me how horrifying my sins are to God. But once our perspective grows, the cross turns into something totally different. Have you ever wondered why Jesus still has the scars after his resurrection? Have you ever wondered that? Why does he still have the scars after he's been resurrected? Well, let me tell you a story that I think illustrates the answer. A little girl once asked her mother, Mama, why are you so ugly? The mother said, Come here, my darling. And I will tell you. 
It was time for the secret to be told. And so she explained why her face was covered in scars. She told the girl that a fire had broken out in their home when the child was only a baby. The mother was at a neighbor's house. And when she realized the house was engulfed in flames, she ran home and plunged into the fire to rescue her daughter. She saved the child, but not without great cost to her own body. The scars she bore on her face were the result of the rescue. After the young girl heard this story, she was overwhelmed with love. And in tears, she cried out, Mama, you are the most beautiful person in the world. You see, ugliness can become beautiful when you see it from the right perspective. And when you see the sacrifice of Jesus for what it really is, that on the cross, Jesus plunged into the fires of hell itself for you and for me, for our rescue at an infinite cost to himself. Then you can see why he still has those scars. And those scars, those nail-scarred hands and those nail-scarred feet will become the most beautiful hands and the most beautiful feet in the world to you. Because those are the marks of the rescue. And the marks of the rescue. And the beauty in those scars has the power to destroy your idols and provide an amazing new motivation for obedience. As the old hymn writer says, Behold the wounds in Jesus' hands, the marks upon his side. Then ponder who he meant to save when on the cross he died. Behold his wounded hands and feet. Come touch and see and feel the wounds and marks that you may know his love for you is real. Let's bow our heads together. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for sending your son. Without him, Father, we are lost. We are lost. Jesus, what can we say about your scars? 
What can we say about your suffering? What can we say about the punishment that you took in our place? Lord, thank you just doesn't quite seem to cut it. That you would love us so much that you would trade places with us. We deserve those scars. We deserved that punishment for our sin and rebellion against our Creator. But somehow, some way, in your great love and your great mercy, you rescued us. You took our place and you suffered what we should have suffered. And Jesus, we, we don't even know exactly how to respond other than to just say, please, as we run this Christian race, help us always look forward at the beauty that awaits us at the finish line, at your beauty, Lord. Remind us, Jesus, that you are the prize that is waiting for us. You are the treasure that is incredibly guaranteed to us by faith. What a savior, what a rescuer you are. Thank you for your great love, your great sacrifice on our behalf. And we just pray, Lord, that we would be able to walk and to run in the beauty of your love.